Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. Norman Fisher, in the essay that I asked you to read last night, um, wrote this about suffering. There is suffering that is necessary, and there is a lot of suffering that is absolutely unnecessary. All of us cause ourselves unnecessary suffering. A huge percentage of the suffering that we feel on a daily basis is extra. Should we shut the window for a little bit, do you think? I feel like I'm at the dentist. Maybe just the first Not all of them, maybe just the That's where the dentist is coming from. I'm going to start that again. There's suffering that is necessary, and there is a lot of suffering that is absolutely unnecessary. All of us cause ourselves unnecessary suffering. A huge percentage of the suffering that we feel on a daily basis is extra. We don't need it. There's plenty of suffering built into human life. We can just wait for it. We don't need to add more by unintentionally making choices that cause more suffering. We don't need to add more by getting trapped in our mind's attachment to past or future problems and potential pitfalls. It's kind of what we talked about yesterday, isn't it, with expectations. If I have an idea about how my day is supposed to go, or my life, and my day or my life doesn't go that way, I have a reason, it seems, to be unhappy. But I've created that myself. When we stop creating unnecessary suffering, this is the last paragraph. When we stop creating unnecessary suffering, we can notice all the real suffering around us. All the fake unnecessary suffering is actually distracting us, protecting us in a way from the real suffering around us. The real suffering is much more intractable. It's horribly painful, but it connects us to everyone else in the world. And so in that sense, the real suffering is okay. It's a strange ending, isn't it? We become numb and isolated because we want to avoid the suffering, but it's the numbness and isolation that feel the worst. 
When we break through the unnecessary suffering and connect with others, it's hard and it's painful, but it's also better. When we open up to the real pain of caring for others, we do feel better. That's interesting, isn't it? So there's all this extra suffering that we, we set up for ourselves. And you, you probably think as you're reading the essay, well, okay, if I stop doing that, then I'll, I'll feel better and I'll be free. And he says, well, actually, if you stop creating the unnecessary suffering, then you start to feel the real suffering. But the real suffering is okay, because the real suffering actually connects us with other, other people. So, so there's a gray area though. Hmm, yeah. What's the gray area? The gray area of what suffering you create you've created yourself. Uh huh. That's what we're gonna talk about today. <laughs> Is that gray area. Also known as the brain. <laughs> so the subject of the day today is um, third foundation of mindfulness which is mindfulness of mental states. Uh, the first foundation that we explored <clears throat> is mindfulness of the breathing body. The second foundation that we explored is mindfulness of feeling tone. And the third foundation is mindfulness of mental states. Mindfulness of the mind. But all of this attention is in the context of changing our relationship to suffering. In um, traditional Buddhism, there are two terms to talk about meditation. Shamatha and Vipassana. Shamatha means uh, to stop or to calm down, shamatha. Sham is actually where you get the word um, shanti, which means ease. Um, it's a, sham originally, etymologically, is a nickname for Shiva. It's sham. And uh, so you get all kinds of words, shamatha, shambhala, so, so many words we have. Um, so sham means to stop and calm down. And uh, vipassana, or in Pali, vipassana, a pasha is an I, and V is an intensifier, which means to go in. So sometimes people translate vipassana as insight, literally to go in and look. But together these terms are really interesting, shamatha vipassana, because I think they describe really clearly what happens in meditation practice. You stop and calm down, and then you can see more clearly. You stop and you see. You stop and you feel. You stop and there's clarity. Or as I said yesterday, you have contact, and then you can have experience. When you have experience, you have realization. Pasha is an eye. An eye, yeah. 
So shamatha, which is pretty much all the practices we've looked at so far, refers to meditative practices that calm down our agitated bodies mm. and mind. <coughs> and the reason why we're calming down our minds and bodies is so that we can see more clearly. Cultivating a mind that's able to investigate and that's really curious about experience. And this week you're going to hear me say this to you over and over and over and over again, which is, I want you to get more interested in your experience. More curious about what's happening for you. The way I used to say this to people is, become your own teacher. That if I'm doing my job, you will become your own teacher. But nowadays I, I've changed that and now, you know, sometimes you have to like refine what you say because sometimes it works. So, you know. so nowadays what I say is get interested in your experience. Get more interested in your experience. And I think about this all the time. Like when I'm working with people, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or in groups or people are asking questions, I keep that in my mind. How, when I'm responding to you when you have a question, can I help you get more interested in your experience? Because I can't solve your problems. So, so all of us who are practicing, we're seeking liberation without grasping. And that's beginner's mind, this fresh mind. Just being here, observing, and seeing what happens. And being ready for whatever is arising in our present experience. And before you can let go of your expectations, and before you can let go of your prejudice, before you can let go of your preconceptions, you have to notice them. <laughs> And you can't notice them until you've calmed down. Otherwise, they're just carrying on in the background, affecting everything you see and everything you do, but sometimes you don't even know it. Um, and as you sit, you start to see the really persistent, persistent thoughts. Are you seeing this? Are you seeing patterns of mind that are so persistent? I hope so. And then we can discover our, our natural radiance. Um, I once studied with a meditation teacher. I did a couple of retreats with him named Joseph Goldstein. And um, uh, you get a chance on retreat to meet with the teacher. And both times I met with him, he had the same advice. It's, he said, it's very simple, but it, it's not always easy. <laughs> Isn't that good? It's very, <laughs> it's very simple. 
It's not always easy. <laughs> so the way that we become more intimate with ourselves is through uh, going through these four foundations of mindfulness. The first foundation is really important because if you can't work at the level of the body, then when it's time to work with strong feelings, it's just not going to be possible. You'll be working with your ideas about your feelings because you don't know how to tune into the breathing body. Second foundation is really important because there's a, a, that insight, someone mentioned it yesterday about bottlenecking, that insight that all of our experience is pleasant or unpleasant. And to actually be able to feel that in a moment of frustration, to actually name it unpleasant, <laughs> and to know how to be with what's unpleasant. <clears throat> so, the two foundations of mindfulness that we've covered have to do with physicality. They're somatic practices. They have to do with the sensory world by tuning into our senses and purifying them and our relationship to them. Your breath, um, the Buddha says your breath calms bodily fabrications and then calms mental fabrications. The way I usually think of it is the breath massages your heart so it's not so agitated. And then we get to the third foundation of mindfulness, which is mindfulness of the mind. But I never say the mind. In Sanskrit, there's no prefix the, which is kind of interesting. Um, I just say mindfulness of mind or mindfulness of mental states. Um, some of you might know that uh, in Chinese, the, the pictogram that represents mind is heart. And in India, at the time that these teachings were developed, um, this was the location of your mind. Your, your mind wasn't in your head. Your head was considered a bone, it was bone. And the inside of your head was marrow. And they thought that when you were sick and you had mucus coming out of your nose, that this was marrow coming out of your head bone. And that's why, like if you blew your nose, you were literally blowing out your brains. <laughs> so it's interesting how different cultures have different metaphors that we then internalize for how we experience our body and our mind. And now we think of the mind as being in the brain. But any good neuroscientist would probably tell you that um, that's old-fashioned and that um, your brain and your mind are not the same thing and that they don't know where either of them are. Because we used to think your brain was this thing here, but 
Now we know that the brain is involved in all kinds of chemical reactions, hormones, etc., and that it's also outside of your body, too, in your environment. You don't know where it starts or ends. It's kind of interesting. And I think we also know that you can have great accomplishments during the day, do good things, do good things, but if your heart's a little bit off, everything's off. If the mind's just out of alignment. Um, so I wanted to read to you what the Buddha says about uh, mindfulness of the mind, and then we'll break this down. A monk knows the... uh, Herein, monks, that's you, a monk knows the consciousness with lust as with lust. Oh, he's given eight different mental states. This is just the one with lust, because this is a really good one. Uh, A monk knows the consciousness with lust as with lust, the consciousness without lust as without lust, the consciousness with hate as with hate, the consciousness without hate as without hate, consciousness with ignorance as with ignorance, the consciousness without ignorance as without ignorance, the shrunken state as a shrunken state, the distracted state as a distracted state. I don't have to go on, but he, he just he starts going through all these different mental states. And it, all he's saying is, um, know them. He doesn't say get rid of them. He just says know them. Because when you see them, you reduce grasping. A mind that doesn't have lust is a mind characterized by generosity. A mind without hatred is a mind that has care. And I, I, I like thinking about lust because lust is one that I think a lot of us get caught in thinking, this is a great mental state. But if you feel lust and you really start paying attention to it, you'll start to notice that the problem with lust is that it owns you. And if it owns you, there's suffering. There's grasping. You don't have control. So when you feel lust, it feels so good because it makes you really feel alive. Your body really feels alive. Do you guys have this in London? (laughs) No. Okay. Yeah, very, yeah, okay. Yeah, so when you feel lust, there's incredible pleasure and it's exciting. But when your system quiets down, it becomes obvious that you're in the grip of something. And any mental state that you're in the grip of is a condition for suffering. And most unskillful things that we do are driven by lust or hate. Then he says, notice a mind that's contracted, notice a mind that's distracted, notice a mind that's expanded. Now, 
the way we're going to do this today is we're not going to go through every single mental state in the way the Buddha teaches. I'm going to give you a kind of more general way of thinking about this. But I wanted to sort of give you an idea of how detailed he gets around it. Um, and it helps us kind of see the mind rather than identify with the mind. It's like someone who's never had a massage. You know, and then they go to shiatsu. And they're like, oh my god, I had no idea. I had this recently. Uh, you know those chair massages that they do at the airport? Yeah. So I, I, I was at an airport in, uh, I think it was in Salt Lake City or somewhere. Strange. And uh, there, there was a guy on the chair next to me, and he was getting a massage. And he, he was quite um, vocal. <laughs> and... Um, and it was the first time he'd ever had a massage. He was probably in his 50s. And uh, he just couldn't believe all the stuff this guy was finding. And he thought that the massage therapist was like this genius <laughs> that like had tuned so deeply into this guy's body. Like maybe the most, you know, this like one of the best massages. And, and then he said, I'm gonna start planning my flights so that I come through this airport and I come see you, you know. He's a business traveler, whatever. So that experience of like, oh my God, a body. So we want to have that kind of relationship. Oh, a concentrated mind. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> you know, oh, calmness, a sustained calmness. I had no idea. Or what about, what about getting into a new relationship and feeling lust, feeling desire, feeling all those things, and also feeling calm, and also not having anxiety. Because <laughs> you know sometimes when two people meet, we kind of idealize it's romantic, but there's often like a lot of anxiety. <laughs> So, I want to offer you some uh, key insights here around uh, mindfulness of the mind. Number one. <clears throat> oh, I was going to write this on the board. Alistair, do you want to just write it on the board? Yep. In English? <laughs> Yeah. Okay, number one. Mental states are not inherently fixed. Mental states are not inherently fixed. Yeah, mental states are not inherently fixed. Number two, you can hold mental states lightly. And, and any of you, can, if you don't understand or you're confused or you think, oh, this is too idealistic, please, please say something. 
So the first one again, mental states are not inherently fixed. Number two, you can hold mental states lightly. Now this is where I use the example of this guy getting a massage beside me, where he just had no idea what was going on in his body, because he had never really felt his body. So when I say you can hold mental states lightly, sometimes we completely forget that we give power to mental states. And we don't even see how we're holding them. And that's what this foundation is about. Seeing how we're relating to mental states. Number three, <laughs> mental states are phenomena. They're not who you are. Mental states are phenomena. They're not who you are. And number four, that's a lot, this is the last one. You can change your attitude. You can change your attitude. Does everybody hear that? <laughs> you can change your attitude. Some of us identify so much with our moods. But as we get quieter and have a regular practice, we start to see that mental states are actually not so interesting. What's more interesting is how your mind is operating. So more interesting than the mental state itself is how you're holding it and what you're doing with it. So what is this state interested in? What's the mind trying to do? Is it helpful? Is this going to lead to freedom? Am I free? because I've talked about what the foundation, the, I've talked about what the third foundation is. I've set it against the context of shamatha vipassana. Then I talked about the insights, like what are the key insights around this, but I haven't talked about the technique yet. 
And I think when I start talking about the technique, it'll relate more to beginner's mind. So it's coming. And then we're going to work with it all day. For the rest of your life. Yeah. But it's a really good question. Yeah. So I feel like I really understand this conception. Yeah. And I have like this propensity to want to fix everything, but mm -hmm. I realize that it's like such a hindrance Because mm -hmm. it, it's something that being masquerade is a good thing. Mm -hmm. Like I'm always like planning and fixing and being like driven and and I, I just start to realise that I just need to really let go of of wanting to fix everything and let it yeah. be okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, get to know the mind that wants to fix everything. <laughs> and start to recognize that mental state. And the more you recognize that mental state operating, the less power it has to operate. Like, it's very powerful to just see a pattern operating. It starts to lose its its momentum, it starts to lose its energy. Sometimes I think when you actually see a mental pattern operating, it's like it gets shy and then wants to like cover up and go hide somewhere. <laughs> So that, that's your job, is being able to see that pattern operating and then come back to your breathing again. I get stuck in the emotions that are unequal. So, so like, you know, this is insecurity and fear, mm -hmm. so, then, so then do I look at that pattern? Yeah, you can notice that there's insecurity present. Notice what that feels like. <clears throat> and breathe there, and then it'll change. And after a while, you'll start noticing when that's there, and notice how to decenter from it. That's it. Remember, this isn't psychotherapy. So we're not going into the content and saying, oh, I'm insecure, and this is the insecurity that's around all the time, and we're not getting into all that. We're just noticing the mental state, coming back to our breathing, and what it feels like. And we're defining feeling by pleasant, unpleasant. It's not more sophisticated than that. Yeah. Yeah. So. There, there's a place for psychotherapy. Like if, if you have recurrent patterns that haunt you, that you want to investigate more, then there's a time to investigate it. But what we're learning is not using that mode of thinking and analysis. We're just going right into the body that's breathing. And as we do that, we're noticing how we're holding mental states and learning how to drop them. And this is, of course, the paradox of psychotherapy, is that sometimes in psychotherapy, we're so good at analyzing our problems and our emotions with a fantasy that we're going to solve them. But we don't maybe have the technique internally in us to know how to drop it. And because of that, it makes us rely much more on the therapist sometimes than is necessary. And the thing about meditative practice is 
it actually is self-empowering because it's teaching you how to work with what's happening for yourself. Any other comments, questions, Alistair? Um, these things don't, it's not like somebody they go away. It's like with the, the Buddha and Mara, mm-hmm. who's always there. Mm-hmm. And but as you say, he gets shy. I think he's, he's depicted as an old man sometimes. Yeah. And he just kind of withdraws, but, but he's never very far away. Yeah. I mean, yes and no. Like, on the one hand, yeah, our thinking is always going to keep secreting itself. You know, it's what the mind does. And on the other hand, there's lots of times in practice where thinking stops, or um, there's a quiet that just lasts a long time, or thoughts are happening but they're so far in the background they're just there's no interest in them, and that can go on for a really long time. So, both are true. Like, yes, thoughts don't stop, but our relationship to them can change dramatically. Yeah. And you can have months and months of practice where you sit down on your cushion and there's not much thinking. but we're not really looking for that. Yeah. I mean, if something's an unconscious pattern, then it's unconscious, so you can't see it. <laughs> well, you don't even just leave it, you just don't know, because it's unconscious. Like, uh, there's a quote I like to, to remind people of. Carl Jung's definition of the unconscious. If it's unconscious, it's unconscious. (laughs) You know when people say, that's that thing I do that's unconscious? It's like, nope. (laughs) Then it's not unconscious. If something's unconscious, it's unconscious. But there's a difference between unconscious, something that's unconscious, and something that you just haven't paid attention to Mm -hmm. before, and you're beginning to pay attention Mm -hmm. to. And so it may feel like it was unconscious, but then it becomes more yeah. conscious. Yeah, well, the next thing he says is, if something's unconscious, it's unconscious. And the only way to know it is through projection. So if there's something that's unconscious, the only way that you can know that it's unconscious is that you're projecting it outside of yourself. So that's why relationship is such a good teacher. Because in relationship, the other is always pointing out to you what you can't see. And I think a really good example of this is the Orlando shooting. Because now what we've learned about the, the uh, perpetrator is that he was a gay man 
who couldn't come to terms with his sexuality and his culture. So what gets unconsciously, like what gets repressed is gonna find a way out. And so what gets repressed gets projected outside of us as aggression, you see. And the more that it's repressed, the more aggressive it becomes. Just like if there's something about a country's culture that they're blind to, they'll project those qualities onto another culture that they hate. Like that's the psychology of war, right? That's the psychology of war. Like in order to have an enemy, that enemy has to have quality. No, let's use another example, your family. Okay? So think about your family. Every family has a black sheep. <laughs> Which is probably like everyone in this room. <laughs> but the psychology of the black sheep is that the family has qualities that it can't integrate. So those qualities get projected onto the black sheep of the family. But what we all know, too, is the black sheep actually represents what that family needs to integrate in order to be whole. But if the family can't integrate those qualities, they, they have to split that person off or those values off. And, and you know, can't take that in. Even though that's exactly what you need. I mean, that, yeah, and that's, that's, that's why um, this practice um, is always couched in terms of bodhisattva practice. Because uh, you letting go of your expectations is really good for other people. Good for you and good for other people. So that we learn how to start swallowing our projections a little bit more, recognizing them a little bit quicker. Know when we're stirred up, know when we're reacting, know when we're not ourselves. You know? I'm not being myself. What's going on? And then we get interested in our experience. Rather than thinking, it's just the, the other person. And that's, and that's where the projection becomes dangerous. You know, and um, you know, and another place we see that in our society is with mental illness, where like it's so stressful in families when somebody has mental illness because there isn't a culture around the family to support the family, to support the person in the family with mental illness. So then we have to take the person out of the family, which means taking them out of the culture and putting them somewhere. And because our culture is so obsessed with consuming and producing, if we have people in our society who can't consume and produce, we don't know what to do with them. We have no idea what to do with them. But I've always felt, because I've seen this in my own family, that if you 
Instead of focusing so much on trying to help somebody with mental illness, which is like that, that individual mentality, you put 90% of the energy into just helping the family. Like helping the people around the person with mental illness, uh, you'd help the person with mental illness. Yeah. Is there a debate now? I got guys who've been involved in recent atrocities, they were mm -hmm. mental health issues. Yeah. And it's all yeah. been on you know, drugs for yeah. and it's the coming up with yeah. it's just an interesting device. For sure. So okay, we've gone on a tangent. I, I need to wrap up. <laughs> um, are there any huge questions before we get to the technique? Because now I'm gonna talk about how do you actually do this? Okay, so here's the technique. Um, this is the first one we're going to work with. When you're sitting, you're going to inhale and exhale. And when you notice thinking, you're going to say, thinking, thinking. And then you're going to come back to your breathing. That's technique number one. Technique number two, mindfulness of breathing. And then when you're thinking, you say to yourself, not out loud, <laughs> you say to yourself, future, future, or past, past. And I'll talk more later about why you do it twice. That's it. Those are the two techniques we're going to start with. Together, or like, you can decide. Oh, you can choose either one. Yeah. Either, either you want, either you want to just go thinking, thinking, and come back to breathing, or you might want to do future, future, or past, past. And it becomes interesting to notice if you're kind of a future, future person, <laughs> or a past, past person, because you start to notice, wow, most of the time I'm doing future, future. Planning your next marriage. <laughs> or still trying to figure out what happened in the last marriage. <laughs> but isn't it, isn't it a funny thing with time where when you're thinking about the future, you're actually in the present moment. And when you're thinking about the past, you're in the present moment. Because you can't actually go into the past. Like, your experience of the past is in the present moment. And your experience of the future is in the present moment. So it's really important to see how you create your suffering. How you're constructing your suffering. So, those are the two techniques. Um, we're going to have a break. After the break, I'm going to lead you through just a short example of how that works. And then you're going to do that with each other for the rest of the morning in, in different ways. So uh, to review, third foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of mental states. Um, we're looking very closely at mindfulness of mental states so we can 
have access to these four very important insights. Number one, that mental states are not inherently fixed. They're always flowing. Nobody's ever depressed. There are certain times where the symptoms of depression appear and then they change. During the day, within one hour, within a year, within a lifetime, always changing. Mental states are not fixed. Number two, you can hold mental states lightly, all mental states lightly. Number three, mental states are phenomenon. They're not who you are. And number four, you can sculpt your attitude. And then in order to really see these insights and embody these insights, we need some technique. And we, we uh, finished with two techniques. Number one, thinking, thinking. And number two, future, future, past, past. Yes, we try. Um, when you say harmonize uh, uh, the breath with the experience that comes up, in yeah. other words, are you simply saying bring the mind and the body in sync so that they're at the same place at the same time? Yes. Um, that's a really good question. Yes, and then sometimes a thought pattern will become so predominant that you lose that alignment. So sometimes it's like you're trying to keep that harmonizing happen, but then like a fantasy or a story will show up that just so dominant you lose track of that, and that's when you need to do um, thinking, thinking. And by contact, when you talk about contact, is it that by doing that same, you create an opening to be in the present. And that opening is beginner's mind. So you lose your beginner's mind when you're in the fantasy, and this was your question earlier, which is um, every time you come back again, you come back to beginner's mind. And then you're ready. Right? When you're caught up in a story, you're not ready. You're not responsive. You're not creative. I like using the word creative because like, when you're present and you don't have a lot of ideas, there's a lot of ways you can respond to the present moment. I used to teach uh, to a dance company for, for a long time. And the, way they, um, the way they warmed up before they rehearsed they did these really cool exercises here. Come, come close. Voluntolding. This is voluntolding. <laughs> they do these different exercises where they would touch parts of their body and they would be told like, to use different amounts of pressure, um, you know, try insides, try outside. Like the, there would just be like a million techniques, all with an arm, for maybe half an hour. Okay? And it sets your body up to be really responsive to what's happening in the present moment. Right? And it sets your mind up. And this is beginner's mind. This is being creative, which is to be really responsive. This is being a good parent. This is being a good artist. This is being a good citizen. Right? How do you be a good citizen? You respond to what's going on. What's needed. But you can't do that if you're all like in your head. So, 
Thank you.